This evening, um, I would like to look at the subject entitled, The Lord's Return. There are five major areas in our Lord's, um, it, five major events in Christ's work, and four are past. His birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to where he is presently at the right hand of God in heavenly places. But in Revelations it says that blessed are they who keep the sayings of this book. And we know that there is one yet to come, and that is Christ's return. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. As we think about Christ's return, being ready is of utmost importance. And here in Matthew 25, we have a parable given about Christ's return. And to me, it's rather sobering as we read through this story. So I'd like to read, begin reading here in verse 1 of chapter 25 of Matthew. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Here we have this parable about Christ's return. And it brings out here that we don't know when it'll be. We don't really know the day nor the hour when God, Christ, is going to come back. We don't know when he's going to return. And I believe that we do ourselves a disservice to speculate on when this might be. You know, when we see things stacking up in the world scene like it is, we contemplate whether it might would be. But the, the instruction is to be ready, because no man knows the day nor the hour when it's actually going to happen. And you know, the Jews had things all thought through and figured out. And they thought they knew, and they missed it. And so the second coming of Christ or his return on this earth, is prophesied 318 times in the New Testament. It's certain that he's coming back. We can know that for certain. Christ is coming back. And he's going to come onto this earth as a triumphant one. The second coming of Christ is certain. When he was here the first time, he was meek and lowly, it says, and he had not a place where to rest his head. But when he comes back, things will be substantially different. He'll come back as a conqueror, Lord of all. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19, and we'll notice there some aspects of his return. And I can't really hit them all, but we'll hit a few high points at least. Uh, thinking about Jesus coming back as a conqueror and Lord of all, here in Revelation 19, Beginning to read in verse 11, it says, 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his forehead were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We see this um, story here and this description here. And in our mind's eye, picture what is being described of Christ, of a stride of a white horse and many crowns on his head. And this appearance of him with his eyes, it says, as a flame of fire. You know, sometimes fire is so bright that you can't really tolerate looking at it. And, you know, maybe that's what Christ's eyes will be like. And then out of his mouth went a sharp sword, it says. Christ will be awesome to behold. And, you know, I talked the other night about the awesomeness of Christ and how that we toss that word around rather freely. And, but, you know, um, whatever it is that is on this finite earth won't seem like much compared to Christ when we see him. The sight that truly strikes us through with awe. As we behold him, you know, John was having a vision here of heaven, but when he got to Christ and beheld him, why, he um, fell at his feet as dead, it says. And let's flip back to chapter 1 of Revelation, and we'll see that uh, part of the uh, revelation there. Revelation chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 12, it says, And I turned and saw the voice of him that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His, hair, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in the furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death." So we have this description here of Jesus. And in both of these passages that I read, it talked about eyes that blaze like flame of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth. And here there's a few other descriptions that talked about how his head and his hair were white as wool, was white as snow, and his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. If you've ever seen metal that's been heated up and it glows red, that's the picture, my mental picture that I would get of what his feet would appear like. And then and his voice as the sound of many waters. You know, have you ever been by a trickling brook or out by the seashore and heard the water just 
And I don't know what all that means, what that description would be like as he spoke. It may be an all-encompassing voice that just uh, took everything, you know, just was heard from all angles. I, I don't know exactly what that means, but his voice was as it is many, uh, the voice of many waters. And then, again, his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And there again, you know, you, you can't hardly look straight at the sun. We, we see the, enjoy the uh, brightness of the sunlight, but to look straight at it is blinding. And his countenance, as John saw it there in that vision, was as the sun. Some people scoff at a heaven and a hell, but Jesus said, in my house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus will be awesome to behold. And when he returns, we shall all see him. You know, in our area, traffic is sometimes sparse. And when you leave out of Columbia, South Carolina, there's a four-lane, uh, it's not uh, interstate, but it's a four-lane highway. And certain times a day, there, there's not much traffic on it. And there was one man that visited in our area that was, when he got to our place, he said, when I left out of Columbia and headed down that road, I thought that maybe the return of the Lord had come. There was no one on that road. And, you know, he came from Lancaster County, and he was accustomed to always heavy traffic everywhere. And, but, you know, uh, the fact is that even though he joked that maybe the rapture had come, when it comes, I believe we'll know. Um, says in one, chapter 1, verse 7 here, it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Behold, he comes, and even those who pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth will see it. When the rapture happens, we will all know about it. But it will happen rather quickly. Uh, in Matthew 7, it says, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And so, you know how a lightning strike, it just choof, flies across the sky. And that's the way it's going to be. And you know, we have this song that says, On that bright and cloudless morning when the coming of Christ, I forget exactly how the words go, but you know, that's not actually scripturally accurate. It says, He's coming with clouds, it says here, and every eye shall see him. You know, it says that when he was received up and ascended into heaven, that he was received up into the clouds. And it says in another place that even as you saw him go, so shall he come back again. And so when and how? We don't know when. Uh, we know a little limited a bit about how maybe, but he will be here and we'll know it. And it will happen quickly and instant in a splitting of a second and these parables in the new testament are written so that we can understand him and the parable i read in matthew 25 there about the ten virgins illustrates some uh, facts about his coming again let's flip back to there matthew 25 and i'll reread one of the verses that i read a while ago here in um, verse 13 it says Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. You know, the sobering part of this parable here is that all these folks were Christians. These ten virgins, they all had Christians. They all uh, had a lamp, and they all had a light. 
You might say they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their life. Contemplate for a moment what this parable could mean when it says that five of those virgins came up wanting. Uh, what could that mean for me? Um, when it says that maybe some Christians who are possessors of the Holy Spirit and who have yielded their lives to the Lord and our church members could come to the end of life and be lacking. To me, that's sobering. Could that be me? What, where, where am I in my Christian walk? The Holy Spirit is a precious gift, and oftentimes we don't value it as we ought. Let's flip to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll notice a verse there where it says, Ephesians 4, verse 30, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You know, God has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and also has promised to hold us in the hollow of his hand. And God has extended his olive branch out to us, you might say, sent Jesus to die for us on the cross, and extended that universal love that extends to each and every person that is available for all. And we have availed ourselves of that, but we have a part to play also. And God has a plan for each life. And as we look in the scripture, we believe there is a universal plan, that of godliness and love and humility and brotherly kindness and holiness. That's God's universal plan. But also, he has an individual plan for each of us, we realize. He has a life's work planned out for us, and it's up to us to discern what it is. And sometimes we struggle to discern what that is what that path might be. But are we on the path of what we know? Have we followed all the um, instructions and leading that we've had up to this point? It's easy to deviate. We can allow other things to push Jesus out. Jesus warned in his parable of the sower that it, the good seed can be choked out and that they that hear the word and turn away from it by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, it says. And so it's important that we consider that as we walk in this world, that we keep our lamps of the Holy Spirit fire nurtured and lit and stoked, you might say, through Bible reading and prayer and the fellowship of each other. In John 17, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, I pray not that you would take them out of this world, but that you would keep them from the evil. And, you know, think about being kept from evil. You know, there are some who blatantly turn away and reject God and his ways. But in the parable here in Matthew 25, they all had lamps and they all had some oil. And they yet... Uh, it seems that some came up short. Um, seems like without anybody hardly knowing uh, when it came down to the wire of the moment when that lightning flash went from the east to the west, you might say, putting it in the terminology of Christ's actual return, that there was something lacking there. And that's a sobering thought to me. Somehow, some, without anybody hardly noticing, you might say, lost out their personal commitment to love and serve their holy God. Let's, uh, in John 17, it also says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. 
So he was praying his high priestly prayer in the presence of his disciples and followers there. But he's saying, I'm not only praying for these, but I'm praying for those that will believe on you, God, through the words of these disciples. And so those followers wrote the scriptures and we have those scriptures. And so he was praying for us that we would be kept from the evil. He said, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil. And so that's an important consideration. Jesus prayed for us. Let's flip to Luke chapter 9. And here um, we have some instructions that are really helpful. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his glory and in his Father's, in, I'm sorry, when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Here it says that we need to deny ourselves. And we heard in Sunday school this morning a little bit about how denying ourselves involves cutting off those things that would be pleasing to us, but yet would be detrimental to our Christian life. And so it's important that we are willing to contemplate, is this thing an asset or is it a weight for me? And what can I do? It says here that he that will lose his life for my sake shall save it. And if we're ashamed of Christ, he'll also be ashamed of us when he comes in his glory. As I said earlier, Christ is coming back with an entire different approach than he had while he was here on this earth. He exchanges lowliness for majesty. He exchanges suffering for victory. And he exchanges being oppressed to being Lord of all. And when he comes back, he's going to be the one that is going to be exercising, you know, to use crude terminology, he will be the one calling the shots. There will be no other option. He will be Lord of all. And I read that illustration a while ago about the, him riding on a white horse and with that striking appearance, all striking appearance, and the armies of heaven following him on white horses. You know, the non-resistance will be passed at that point. And Christ will be engaged in warfare against the armies of the evil one. And he will be the victor. He will be the victor. Let's flip to, uh, well, reading on here in Luke chapter 9. Drop down to verse 28. I'm sorry, 58. 58 of Luke chapter 9. And Jesus Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. And, but he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. As we think about um, 
not taking our hands off the plow. You know, um, people years ago used to plow with horses, and as I, I never did, but they say that the only way to make a straight furrow is to always keep looking down the furrow ahead of you. If you look back, there will be a wiggle in the next furrow that you're actually making at that point. And Jesus here says, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, that you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And he used these couple illustrations here. Uh, foxes of the air have holes, or foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And when he instructed these men to follow him and they offered these excuses up, he, he basically said they're not valid. And so don't pull off from being a Christ follower to struggle with another person or hold a grudge or be immoral or be weak in faith. Maintain that Holy Spirit fervor for serving God and following him. Christ gave himself for the church and is as a bridegroom for us all. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll notice a couple of, or yes, a verse here that brings that out. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, it says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I present you, may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so, the Apostle Paul speaking here, he said, I, talking to the Corinthians, he said, I worked for your salvation and have worked to build you up. And I, I care about you, but I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so as we consider our subject here tonight, do you have your wedding garment on? Are, are, do you have your lamp lit and burning? You know, some brides have been driven to distraction to get their dress just right and arrangements fixed up just so-so so that it can be right for the wedding day. And, you know, um, we should be putting this kind of focus into meeting our God. It's the culmination of a lifetime, and it's a make-or-break situation, an eternity to reap for what our preparations have gotten us. And, you know, within the church, we have a haven of safety, a net of godly brethren and sisters that is pulling for our eternal good. Jesus said, the confession that I am Christ is a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And we're building churches on Jesus Christ, building churches on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the one that's worthy of seeking, and he's the one that's worthy of following and working with. And it says also that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, the devil and the powers of darkness cannot stop us if we're devoted to him. In the back of the book, it tells us, in the book of Revelation, it says, our side wins. We know that. Our side wins. If we're on Christ's side, we're on the winning side. And it might not seem it like, like it here in this life. We have to view the Bible and read it and take it by faith and continue to embody that, to realize that we are in this earth in a tension of struggling against the powers of darkness and the evils that are around about us in society and laboring and serving to, or working to serve our Christ. Our side wins. Put your all into that, knowing that you're on the winning side. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
2 Peter chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perisheth. But that but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. You know, um, we might think that I don't really know anyone that's willingly ignorant of this fact. But yet, I think we see them all around us. Uh, we might not know anybody personally, and maybe we do. But you know, evolution is being pushed in our in our educational systems, as I understand it. We've gotten away from that with our uh, religious schools and um, schooling um, curriculums that we have and church schools that are, have the thrust of biblical teaching. But as I was understand it, most all public school systems push evolution as the beginning of the way the earth came into being. Millions of years and all of that says they're willingly ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth was standing out of the water and in the waters. Referring to creation, seven 24-hour literal days that our earth was created by God's spoken word. And we know that. Thank God we've been taught that and we believe it by faith. But as part of that package then, as it says here in verse 7, that this, this heaven and earth, which is now, held by God's word here, um, are reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So, where is the promise of his coming? It's right here. We believe it by faith. He's coming back, and this earth will disappear. And so, it, uh, you know, it says here in these first couple verses here I read that in the last days there will scoffers come walking after their own lusts. And it's important that we recognize that that is the case. There are many around us, but that it can work on us, that we can get fuzzy and waffle in our Christian commitment. It's important that we build on our most holy faith. Jesus died for our sins, and he's coming back to reign on this earth. And I think it's in Job that he says, By faith he saw him standing on the earth. I forget exactly how that verse goes. I should have looked it up. But... He'll reign on the earth and receive those of us who have been faithful to him. In the parable in Matthew 25, the virgins slumbered and slept, and the bridegroom tarried. And that's where we're at in these days. Uh, I trust we're not slumbering and sleeping. And, but as we think about it, why, uh, you know, the devil persecuted the early church and down through the ages, and there's still much persecution in the world today. I've read some... Uh, figures and facts recently, and I think it's in the last 50 years maybe, there's more people they believe that have been, have died for the faith of Jesus than what there had been in any era prior to that, or maybe even the entire time prior to that. Those figures are a little fuzzy to me. There's persecution yet today, but yet for us, it seems that his tactic is to just let us float and let us alone, and it seems that he can gain a lot of ground by not opposing us, 
by letting us be lulled to sleep. To be lukewarm is to when sin is no longer distasteful to us. The wise virgins took along extra vessels of oil, which the foolish failed to do. So the wise Christian has a supply of oil, an abundant supply of the Spirit of Christ. This is the source of the new spiritual life when we give our lives to Christ. All through life, it's the secret of spiritual life's enduring character, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And let's flip to Jeremiah chapter 6. And I would like to read a couple of verses there that talk about walking with the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning to read in verse 15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. So here, evildoers, it says, were not ashamed. And said they had committed abomination, and they weren't ashamed at all. They didn't blush. And he said, but when, they, when I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. And then he gave us this instruction of find the old way. And um, you might ask, uh, it says, ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and you'll find rest to your souls. You know, what is the old way for us? And I believe it is the way of putting his enabling grace Trusting in Jesus and putting his enabling grace to work in our life daily. Thanksgiving and praising to God daily. Daily prayer and Bible reading and extend, praising God for him having extended mercy to me. That's the old way. It's the way that will never get um, old. I mean, it's, you might say the way that is from old, but it's a way that will never get old for us. But as we think about our work in this uh, life to maintain the Holy Spirit within us, I think we need his enabling grace every day. We need to seek him. But there is more. The church's job is to sound the cry that the Lord is coming back. The Lord is coming. Do we believe that everyone who dies outside of Christ is certain to descend into a fiery inferno? Um, it's there. Um, it's a fiery abyss for souls. You know, they told, the, the uh, parable is given also of Jesus about the rich man and Lazarus. And it said the rich man had all kind of good things and fared sumptuously every day. And there was this man, Lazarus, that was under his table and would have been glad to eat the crumbs that was put out for the dogs. But in time, they died. And they ended up in the eternal world. And... I don't know how all that goes, but in this parable, they could observe each other. And the rich man looked over there and saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he pled with him, Abraham, could you send Lazarus over here with a drop of water on the tip of his finger to cool my tongue? Now, you might think that, you know, with this rich man being in hell and under torment, he said, I'm in torment in this flame. 
And what would a drop of water, what good would a drop of water do? Um, you know, it would have been gone in no time. You know, a gallon of water maybe would have helped a little. But he asked for a drop for whatever that might be worth. And he was desperate. Uh, he said, I'm tormented in this flame. And then uh, Abraham declined the request. He said, there's a great gulf fixed between you and me, and we cannot pass back and forth. And then the rich man turned into an evangelist. Imagine an evangelist in hell. He said, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. He says, I've got five brothers on the earth, and keep them at least from coming to this place of torment. And Abraham's response, classic response, that we need to grasp with all our being, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. You know, Lazarus didn't come back, didn't go back. He's not coming back for us. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. We've got the scriptures. Thank God we've got the scriptures. We're not deprived. We don't need to read it in secret. We can go down to bookstores, down to CLP the other day, and, you know, there, there was scriptures laying around and religious instructions of all different sorts laying there freely to be had. And I think we need to take those things and think about them. Let us hear them. You know, mainstream Christianity speaks a lot about the love of God. But there is a whole rich mine of instruction in the New Testament that we need to be studying and putting into practice as we learn to know it within our lives. We need to do good to others, even those that do evil to us. And we need to obey the teachings of the scriptures. And thank God we have churches that have been put together that are founded on these core concepts of the scripture. Thank God for our church. Search out what these principles are and embody them for yourself. Tell them to others and claim them as your own. In Hebrews 10, it says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the matter of some is, and provoke to love and to good work. And maybe, you know, it could be a little better word there than provoke. We usually use that in a negative way. But spur each other on to love and to good works. Think about, do you love to come to church? Do you realize it's for your eternal well-being? When it's pointed out that you could chart a little different path in life by some of your loving brethren, do you thank them for that help? You know, they're trying to be working for your own eternal good. Uh, the rich man beat his breast and begged God, or I'm sorry, the man in another parable that beat his breast and begged, God be merciful to me, a sinner, went home justified. Back in Matthew 25, the passage says, No man knows the day nor the hour. Therefore, keep your lamps burning. You know, the five foolish begged of the five wise to give us some of your oil. But someone else's oil will not be good for you. It's up to you to individually maintain your Holy Spirit fire within your breast for your own eternal good and for the well, spiritual well-being of others around you. Maintain spiritual vitality. Pray for wisdom daily. Heaven is a perfect place. And let's flip to Revelation 21, and we'll read a verse there that brings this out. As we get into heaven, it'll be such a joyous place. The presence of God and all those that redeemed were redeemed down through the ages, and there's no evil there and no um, 
nothing there that defiles and nothing there that is um, un, unwholesome or n not ideal, not unpleasant, you might say. And so here in Revelation 21, verse 27, it says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, in that day, the great day of the Lord, the book of life will be opened to see if our name is written on it. And every man, well, let's back up one chapter to chapter 20 of Revelation and beginning to read in verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged of, out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. You know, heaven is beyond description. It says there's no need of the sun there. Uh, the dazzling presence of Jesus and God lights the play, illuminates the whole place up. All is peace and love and joy and rejoicing. Is your name written there? Are your thoughts and deeds such that they can withstand inspection by the eternal God of the universe that created us and put out the rule book? Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. All, all nations will be gathered there around the th throne, but there will be a great separation of the sheep from the goats. And Lucifer and some of the angels fell, and heaven is there, or hell is there for them. But hell is also there for fallen man. Most don't plan to go there. There are an occasional few. You know, I've, I've read about people never talk to any personally. But I've read in readings that, you know, some men joke that they're going to go to hell so they can shovel coal and just make the heat a whole lot hotter. They're naive. They are clueless. They don't know what they're talking about. Hell is an awful place. The devil always promises time. We don't, no one plans to go there. There's always another day or week or year. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. But Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And each human can either open the door to Jesus and respond to God in our hearts and respond to his love and live with him forever or continue on in the path of lukewarmness or rejection and suffer conscious torment in the place of outer darkness.